we'll be together today in the book of Hebrews. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. And if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue Bible that looks like this. And in those Bibles, we'll be on page 586. Page 586. And I at least need some kind of transition to get my head out of announcements and and really thinking about these passages. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the life you've given us and the shared experience of being brothers and sisters in Christ we have. Thank you that present this morning are um, our guests who are just checking the church out. Thank you that, as is always true, there are non-believers here considering the claims of Christ. We pray now as we look at your word that you would help us to understand, that you would move in us volitionally, that we would want to obey that you would empower us by your Spirit, that we'd actually believe we can live out what your Scripture teaches. We pray you'd help us now to these ends, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Most often, we do on Sunday mornings what's called consecutive exposition. And all that means is we start at the chapter 1, verse 1 of a book, and We work our way through the entire book. That's almost always what we do. But every now and then, it seems uh, to us that some concentrated time around a topic and thinking about what the Bible itself as a whole says about that topic um, is important and significant. So once every 12 or 18 months, we take a couple of weeks to do that. And we're going to be doing that together for the next several weeks around the topic of money. Now, why tackle that topic? Let let me give you three quick reasons. Number one, Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the Lord, out of all the things he taught, picked that one and said, this one is of particular significance. And so we want to honor the Lord by uh, making sure that we're faithfully considering this in the way that he has emphasized it. Um, second, a second reason is I, I hope today that this will be come to bear on your heart, perhaps in new ways, in ways like it never has before. There is freedom in what God teaches about money. So far from being something designed to kind of hold us down and make us feel guilty, the way the scriptures address finances and possessions are actually incredibly freeing if they're believed and lived in light of. So I hope that you'll experience more and more freedom in this area as we consider the topic. And then finally, just to humbly admit a failure on my part. As I think of the last 11 years of preaching here, I have not placed sufficient emphasis on this topic in the way that the Bible itself does. And so I'm gradually coming to terms with that. Um, And frankly, it's not a topic I want to talk about, get excited and thrilled and jump up and down about. And yet, the Bible talks about it over and over and over and over and over. And I have not represented that to any degree in the degree of consistency that we've thought about it together. So that's been a failure on my part in my leadership 
And I hope over time to correct that in a way that helps us all. So for the next three weeks, we're going to consider what we're calling some truths about treasure. And then we will move on to the book of Jonah. So if you want to read ahead, you can read the Old Testament book of Jonah. And after that, Lord willing, we'll move into the book of Acts. And uh, those two things will take us the rest of the year. But for now, let's look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Now, I went to school a long time to be able to figure things like this out. If we start in Hebrews 13, what does that mean? It means we skipped Hebrews 1 to 12. So I want to take a moment to summarize what those chapters say. Because the rest of the book really sets up what's said in Hebrews chapter 13. We could summarize it really in just two sentences. Jesus and the life we believers now live in him on this side of the cross is vastly superior to the Old Testament experience that Christians had. Jesus, to say that more simply, Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Covenant. He brought about a new and better experience with God through his death and resurrection. That's what Hebrews 1 through 12 say. This is a really great time to be a follower of Christ because you live after the cross in which all the promises of the Old Testament have found their fulfillment in Jesus. And we don't look forward as though nothing yet has happened. But we look backwards with great appreciation at what Jesus has already done. Amen? And so, as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, then all the theology of Hebrews 1 through 12 fleshes itself out in a list of ways to live in Hebrews chapter 13. And Hebrews chapter 13 aims to answer questions like this. How do I live everyday life because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If Jesus is better, then what does that practically look like for God's people? What behaviors characterize followers of Christ today? Those are the questions that Hebrews chapter 13 answers. I'd love to encourage you to sometime today Take the time to read the whole chapter. It won't take very long. But we want to focus in on just two verses. Verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 13. So follow along with me if you would. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? These verses give us a couple of commands, a couple of promises, and then a response. In our remaining time together this morning, we just want to consider each of those commands, promises, and a response. If you look at the first two-thirds of verse 5, you'll see the commands. They are uh, rather simple, plain, not complex, and just laid out directly. 
First, keep your life free from the love of money. And second, be content with what you have. There's really not a need to spend a ton of time considering what those mean. Their meaning is plain. It's simple. But that certainly does not mean that it's simple to live them out. That, friend, is much more difficult. But to be clear, as you look at that verse, you'll see that these are not suggestions. A failure to submit to God and trust Him with money is sin. And how we think and feel about money is sort of a check engine light for the soul. Just like if you're driving down the road and your check engine light comes on, you know what to do, right? Ignore it, speed up, and hope you get there. No, you should stop, pull over, lift the hood, and pretend like you know what you're looking at. The the check engine light's designed to say something's wrong. You need to stop and find out what it is. And the topic of money is sort of like that. It reveals for us what really is happening at the soul, at the heart level in our relationship with Jesus. You see, Jesus said we can't serve him and money. It will be one or the other. Unchecked, inordinate desires for money, friend, can wreck your faith. That's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You read a paragraph, you'll see it here on the screen. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is a serious issue. Now, you may have noticed both in 1 Timothy 6 and in Hebrews 13 that the issue God is drawing out is not the use of money or even how much of it you have. The issue at play is the love of money. It's the love of money that's so grotesque to God, destructive to our individual walks with Him, and harmful to our shared life together as a church. And so God tells us to keep our lives free from the love of money. What does that mean? Well, it can't mean don't have any. It can't mean don't use it. It can't mean don't work and save and spend. It can't mean any of those things. Because we have lots of other passages in the Bible precisely telling us to do those things. Then what is it? Well, friend, the love of money is living for money. It's finding it to be the center of your affections. It's putting your hope and trust and confidence 
in it. It's to be joyful and feel like you're something when you have it. And to be pitiful and feel like you're nothing when you don't. The relentless pursuit of more and more and more money, the author of Hebrews is telling us, is incompatible with Christianity. And friends, not only that, it's foolish. Because haven't you found this to be true? That no matter how much you have, even if you have more than you used to have, it's never enough. It can't actually satisfy. That's what Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And so this first commandment in Hebrews chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money, is, put, is to put the topic negatively. But the second commandment puts it more positively. It says, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Now, probably the most controversial thing I'll say this morning is right here. So if you've checked out and you want some controversy, now's your moment. All right? Brothers and sisters, the Bible says what you have today is enough. What you have today is enough. Be content. Contentment is, is the freedom from the gnawing anxiety that money will produce security. Contentment is a, an ability to sit down on the inside, irrespective of how much money is in your account. Contentment is living a life not hampered by the smothering demand for more. That's contentment. And friends, doesn't that sound delightful? We, of course, live in a society and have hearts that are predisposed to greed. And we are constantly bombarded with the lie that more money and more stuff will equal more meaning, more success, more happiness, more security. But God, in this simple commandment, be content with what you have, sets us free, gives us the greatest of news. My prayer for you this morning has been that more than a sense of guilt and more than a sense of shame, what you would feel from this message and this text is a freeing, a lifting, a, a finding yourself more joyful and peaceful and happy in Jesus as a result of what you learn from this passage. Now, how would that come about? Or to say that a different way, for most of us, bless you, for most of us, these commands Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have and uh, actually 
living that out experientially. For most of us, there's a great vacillation between those two things. Some days we actually are living like that, and some days we're not. Some days, to put it more bluntly, some days we love Jesus, and some days we love money. And the worry and stress and anxiety and pressure and pursuit of more bats us around back and forth. Do you experience that? And so how is it that we could actually live more often with a love of Jesus than we do with a love of money? Well, the passage tells us. It tells us that there's a truth that will transform even how you feel about this topic. That's what the last clause in verse 5 is about. If you glance back at your Bible, you'll see that it says, For I will never leave you or forsake you. That's how. That's the way. The twin commands at the start of verse 5 are met with twin promises in the middle of verse 5. It says, Beloved, God will never leave you. And beloved, God will never forsake you. Church, coming to trust that these promises are true is the power through which we can live free from the love of money and enjoying the contentment that God has provided for us. That is the key. Now those two promises, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that those promises occur over and over and over. They are some of the most important promises that God gives us in all the Scriptures. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, God says. If you have a Bible that gives um, cross-references, you may notice there that that promise is in quotations and then it points you back to the Old Testament. Let me give you a quick recap of where this verse has been already stated. And in so doing, I hope it will convince you that it's still true today. The first time the promise was given was spoken by God to Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob was experiencing a time of great turmoil in his family and uncertainty about his future. And in that setting, God spoke these words to him. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Later, in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses was leading the nation of Israel, and they were looking into the promised land, thinking, how could we ever actually end up there, in a place of security and safety and peace? And God, through Moses, said to them, in the context of their uncertainty about the future. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. That's Deuteronomy chapter 31. And then later, Moses has died. The new leader, Joshua, has come onto the scene. And Joshua is now responsible to lead the people of God across the Jordan and into the promised land. And Joshua, can you imagine following Moses 
that would be extremely intimidating. And God said to Joshua, in the context of his struggle and doubt and uncertainty, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Friend, are you seeing the pattern? When God's people have some question about their future, when they feel some measure of stress, when they are uncertain, it is precisely in that context that God says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Can you think, friend, about how it would transform the way you think about money if that came to bear on your soul? It's beautiful. You see, the character and the promises of God are the cause of Christian contentment. Church, God promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. Christian, God promises you that he will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews was originally written in a language called Koine Greek. And in the Greek version of this verse, it is even more clear. Let me tell you what it says. It says, not, not you leave. Not, not, not you forsake. God juiced up that verse with all the knots that could be packed in there in order to say, friend, you will, you will have struggle to believe this is true in relationship to your money and in relationship to lots of other areas of life. But not, not you leave and not, not, not you forsake. God wants you to know above everything else, Christian, that he is with you and that he is for you. One author captured it like this, at no time under any circumstances, conceivable or inconceivable, for any possible cause, will God utterly and finally forsake one of his own. Even though that author's name is Pink, that's a really good quote. So these are the commands, and those are the promises. But how does that actually affect our lives? There is no doubt if you've been a Christian a while, you have come across the things the Scriptures say about money. And there is no doubt that you have observed a gap between what God commands and the way you're actually living. And friend, uh, look around. You're not the only one who has noticed, God says this, but I'm doing this. And you're not the only one who said, God, I want to change in that way. And yet, haven't made much movement. Friends, lots of us have had that experience. 
So how does this not be just one more of those messages? How does this not be just one more time you read commands that you want to obey but seem to not actually get any traction with? Well, friends, that's what verse 6 is about. Verse 6 tells us what to do to put them into practice. It says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, notice that that also is quoted. That's a, that comes from chapter 118 of the book of Psalms, verse 6. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that this has been the cry of God's people for millennia. That, that is what God's people have believed. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When God's people hear God's promise to always be with us and never forsake us, then the response of God's people is verse 6. God's promised presence and the assurance of His assistance is our rock-solid confidence that we need not trust money. You see that the connection between verses 5 and verse 6 is a little fuzzy when you first read them. At least it is to me. I mean, how does God, promising never to leave us or forsake us, actually inspire life free from the love of money? That's what verse 6 is about. But think, for with, think with me for a moment about the fact that God, the sovereign Lord, calls himself our helper. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Incidentally, wives, the Bible calls you the helper of your husband. And sometimes I imagine that can feel demeaning or belittling, or like you're not on an equal plane. But friend, I hope you'll never hear that the same way. Because God himself calls himself our helper. To be a helper is to be one in a position of strength. It's to be one who can offer help to someone for things they need that they don't yet have. Church, God says He is our helper. He says that from His infinite storehouse of blessings, He will take care of His people. That's what we confess as Christians. But again, how does that actually come alive in our hearts? How does that change our experience? How does that impact how we use money? Well, I can't help but think the key to this entire conversation is one three-letter word. The word say. Look at verse 6. It's there. Say. Friends, we say it. And maybe it's in actually saying it, in confessing it together, over and over and over and over and over 
that we actually come to experience it as true. There's lots of times the Bible says, I'm going to quote the Scriptures from somewhere else. But it doesn't often say to us to say this. It's there on the screen. I wonder if we could just do it. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Friend, think about for a minute what you've just confessed. Is that a promise that you won't get fired? Is that a promise that you at some point in the future may not get some disease that's so awful that you can't work? Is that a promise that what you didn't get for Christmas that you really wanted, God's going to give you this coming year? Is, Is this God's pledge that if you just believe Him enough, then you can get the house or the car or the computer or the clothes that you so desperately want? Is this a promise that if you work hard enough, then you can retire early? Is this a promise that you can go to your first choice for college, even if it's private and out of state? Is that what that verse is promising? No, it's not. But then how is it not an empty promise? You see the quandary? Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Well, does that mean then that I'll have what I want? No, that's not what it means. How do we know that? Well, look at the last phrase. It says, what can man do to me? Brothers and sisters, What can people do to you? All kinds of things. They can steal your identity. You can open your bank account and one day there literally be nothing in there. They can render your work not good enough and fire you. They can flunk you and cause you to lose your scholarship. They can drive like morons and run into you. They can steal your credit card number and charge up more money than you have. They can hit you. They can kill you. They can rape you. They can do all kinds of things to you. Right? But friend, God has and will hold forever what is most important. You see, life is not about what we have. It's about whose we are. Even if we lose everything we own, and by the way, we will, even if we lose everything we own, God will ultimately keep safe and secure 
your relationship with him. He will hold you fast. He has given himself to you and guarantees a future that is eternal in his presence. That, friend, is what matters most. You see, what matters most is not what is FDIC insured, but what is J-E-S-U-S insured. God will keep you. Therefore, it does not matter how much you have. Do you see the connection now? Our confession in response to God's promises is not that we understand him to be saying, I'll give you material prosperity. No, it's, that is far too pathetic. He's promising us eternal safety in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, money is rather inconsequential. The guarantee that God will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us is something we can trust with complete confidence because that is exactly what God the Father did to God the Son. As Jesus hung on the cross and all the sins of all God's people were placed on him, he died, judged, forsaken, cursed, and alone. Why? Friend, so that you will never, ever, ever have the same experience. That, if we come to grips with that, and we continually confess, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? That, friend, will free you from the love of money. And that will give you the deep, unshakable joy of contentedness. May we help each other to that end. Because we are His. Father, would you reform our thinking in relationship to money? Would you convince us that this is actually true? Would you help us to be candid and bold and humble enough to invite each other into even the financial realms of our lives? Would you help us, Father, to be a church full of people who do not live for this world, but who display a confidence in our place in Christ and invite people all around us who don't yet know the treasure, the joy of living free from the love of money because they don't know Jesus. God, use us in that way, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.